and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 185. Today is Sunday the 6th of March 2016, and this interview is with Chris Bates, Chief Security Officer at Bitland, an NGO that uses the blockchain technology to help register the cadastre of land, with a focus on African countries and specifically Ghana for now. In this stimulating conversation with Chris, we unpack the blockchain and Bitcoin technologies, unblock some of the preconceptions and misconceptions, and exchange on the challenges of implementation. We also look at some of the hot issues of cybersecurity, an ever-present concern for any business on the internet. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset. That's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue. So last week we were talking about Bitcoin and blockchain and this week we're going to get in another round. So today I have on the show Chris Bates, who I also met in Paris at NetExplo, where he won one of the top 10 awards uh, for his project called Bitland. So we're going to be talking a lot about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, and the like. So Chris, tell us who you are and what you're up to with Bitland. Hi, Mentor. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, my, my name pleasure. is Chris Bates. I'm the Chief Security Officer for Bitland Global. What we do is put land titles onto blockchain uh, recorded databases so that the titles are publicly accessible and immutable and the idea is that we're trying to fight government and local corruption and bring transparency to the process of trading land and owning titles. So you have started uh, this project with a focus on Ghana. I mean, there's. A, it seems to me that your focus is on Africa, generally speaking, because you keep, you know, I know I've written your site, you talk about 90% of land titles in Africa don't are not uh, clear or not uh, obvious. So... Why Ghana? So Ghana has been trying to solve the land title dispute problem for the last 20 years. The Lands Commission has established the Land Administration Project, and they've been trying to come up with solutions to bridge the gap between the community leaders and the government to solve this problem, but they haven't really been able to shore it up quite yet. So now they're open to digital solutions and unorthodox approaches to trying to fix the problem. So we're in a place where the government is open to new solutions, the people are open to new solutions, and the environment is ripe for trying something that's completely out, out of the box. Well, you're based in Indiana. So how easy is it to be hand, you know, handling and managing Ghana from such a distance? Well, that's the beauty of the Internet, uh, having... An online office is something that, you know, it wasn't really possible 10 or 15 years ago. So now we're able to spread operations around the globe and have people who are on the ground in Ghana working, going around to the community chiefs while I'm here working on helping getting development going. And then there's other people around the country uh, who are also working on the project. So having a non-centralized point of work has been amazing in this type of process. Sounds very blockchain-y to have a distributed workforce at the same Absolutely. time. Absolutely. So 
I mean, let's say you're based in the States. Uh, I'm based in Europe and England and France. Ghana, how does one describe the level of digitality of Ghana? Um, it varies. So between somewhere like um, the Ashanti region, which is more uh, wealthy versus somewhere like Kumasi, you might have the difference between um, downtown New York City and uh, back roads in a country or a country back road that, that has never paved. So there are in, there's infrastructure that is modern in some places and then some areas are completely underdeveloped or undeveloped. So how are this, this is why sorry go ahead. I was saying how important is the connectivity to your project because I have to imagine that the you know the slowness or the infrastructure is important. So this is uh, one of the reasons that our project is much more than an application because, as you point out, we can't really rely on the local government or infrastructure to make sure that the connections are there. So we have to, or we want to establish solar-powered bitland centers that have access to Wi-Fi all the time. So there's no uh, rolling blackouts are an issue there. So we're trying to make the centers solar powered and look realistically at solving these problems and not just say the blockchain is going to fix everything because there are much more, uh, there are many more problems than just recording the titles and realistically approaching it means that we have to bring our own solutions. So you're not involved with brick at all. Is that, is that part of the distribution of internet accesses as well or not? You know, no. no, you're not. Um, all right, so let's just, just a little bit talk about the blockchain uh, the, uh, technology underneath this. Why does blockchain provide a solution up until now that no one else or nothing else was able to do? Well, what ends up happening is there was too much direct control by uh, special interest groups over information before, so... For example, the New York Stock Exchange, the closer you are to the servers, the min the milliseconds make a difference on trading. Sure. Um, so people would set up their offices right across the street from the stock exchange and have uh, an advantage over someone who is thousands Chicago. of miles away. Right. Um, so knowing that there are um, advantages and disadvantages to having centralized information we are trying to establish a decentralized ledger of transactions so that the government or any specific party can't control or modify records because what ends up happening is the government will change uh, land title and say that it's not owned by anybody and then displace the locals and sell it to uh, another party. And this happens in many countries around the world um, and it ends up causing displaced populations. So, the idea is that if you have a decentralized ledger, then no specific party can go in and modify it to their own benefit or any sort of nefarious intention that will affect anybody else. Chris, when I was reading up about you uh, prior to the interview, I saw that you're also specialized in cybersecurity. Yes, sir. It seems that cybersecurity and blockchain Bitcoin are hand in hand. Why is it that blockchain and Bitcoin is not hackable? <laughs> or it seems to be, as you say, secure. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's not hackable. It's the amount of energy that it would take to hack it is 
that of some organization that is beyond the capacity of most organizations. So to hack the Bitcoin blockchain, you need the resources of the NSA, uh, the Chinese government, or, you know, a, a nation. It wouldn't be something that uh, even Sony, I believe, I don't think Sony or Google could necessarily even pull it off. Google, maybe. Mm-hmm. But the amount of resources that it would take to pull it off are just so monumental. Uh, and the, the reason is because the number of people who are securing the Bitcoin blockchain has reached a number. And uh, now that is such a high number that, like I said, the amount of resources that it would take to counteract that would be that of a government organization. So six years ago, it would be much easier to uh, hack Bitcoin than it is now. But now it's just, uh, it's, so far-fetched. <laughs> it is well installed. Well, it's well installed for the people in the know. So mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about infrastructure a little while ago, but how on earth, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm sort of making, a, painting a picture. You're going to go to this farmer to say, hey, listen, dude, you don't have any titles for your land. You only need to do is sign the bit, bit land. How, how, how do you manage to persuade people who have, titles own property to get in with a program and what what kind of hand-holding do you need to do to bring them in well when it comes to someone who's living in an undeveloped area uh they don't necessarily care as much about the blockchain as what becoming part of the system can do for them so if you go to a farmer and say hey we can help you get investors who will help help you purchase equipment uh we'll help you get uh, water lines out to your farm so you don't have to go walk and get the water for your crops. We'll help you get roads so that people can come to you and purchase your crops directly from you instead of you having to haul them into town. And the current situation allows the infrastructure to be built up in a way that if we are operating within these areas, we're going to create a bridge between the government, the locals, and investors in which the area can now be developed without any sort of corruption polluting the process. And that's where that approach is more appealing to them than any sort of uh, pitch about the blockchain or anything to do with the technology. It's really about how our operation can help the infrastructure be built up in that area. So you guys are an NGO. Yes, sir. Uh, I wanna, I'm going to talk about the financing in a second, but to what extent does your life longevity have uh, to do with the success? Of, I mean, in other words, of course you want success, but at a certain level, if I'm going to use you to validate my property, if you don't exist in 30 years, then how, how do I then sell my property on to, because I'm I'm moving along? Well, um, this is an issue with perpetual land holding. So a situation that's specific to Ghana is that you're only allowed to own a plot of land for either 50 or 99 years. So the idea of land sales aren't permanent there now. Um, And because land exchange is perpetual and the land shifts constantly. Surveys need to be done frequently. There are things that need to be updated regularly. And that is why we're trying to establish an automated aspect of it. So one of the things we're talking about doing is getting drones that 
uh, automatically survey. There are, you know, drones in existence that will fly a 60 kilometer radius and survey everything using wow. uh, FLIR cameras. And they're made specifically for this. So that's one of the, the um, solutions that we're looking into. So it's like um, knowing that there is a long-term uh, potential for this to fall apart is more reason as to why making it automated in the early stages is, is more important. So we can get it. So in year, if we get past year one, moving into year two, the operations will be less dependent upon us as individuals Then in year three, it's less and less dependent on individuals in the application part. So that's why making it distributed is more safe than depending on a company. So if we get the blockchain up and running, then in 10 years, we don't have to necessarily exist as BitLand, and it'll still be up and running. Mm-hmm. So that's the benefit of approaching it this way. And it doesn't have to depend on us being there in 10 years. All right. So the blockchain is fundamental to this, Chris. How fundamental is a cryptocurrency as part of this? Because we, we tend to talk about what it used to be a few years mm-hmm. ago. We were always talking about Bitcoin since 2009. And then all of a sudden... Uh, maybe a year ago, the blockchain blossomed as the big topic. Sometimes you can strip them apart, and in mm-hmm. ter- well, t- in terms of utilization, absolutely. But it, to what extent is Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency relevant to the Bitland project? So initially, uh, I believe the project needs its own cryptocurrency to establish a level of control over who has access to investing in local areas. So um, the cryptocurrency element is something that is more important to the project and not specific to Bitcoin. And what you're trying to articulate as the separate element of the blockchain is absolutely correct. And the technology that drives decentralized security is a completely separate element than the currency itself. So that is part of our development and <clears throat> we're, we're treating them as separate elements. Mm. So the, the, the chain, it's actually not even a blockchain that we're working with. It's an open chain. So um, one of the issues with the blockchain is that because they are put into blocks, there's a specific time that elaborates for them to happen. So with the amount of transactions that happen in a second, this becomes an issue with scaling. So removing the actual block is part of being able to scale up transactions uh, later. Um, I don't, I don't want to make that too much of uh, a focus, but like I said, we're treating the chain or the blockchain, as one might call it, as something separate than the currency. Mm-hmm. Because part of it is in you have the capacity to then start to bring in dollars, um, yen, euros. People can start to invest other currencies later, but in the first stages of the project, you want to make sure that there is some control over who these people are um, and make sure that they're not malicious actors or nefarious people who, for whatever reason, want to use our system to launder, wash their money, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. So in, in the cryptocurrencies, we have the, the lighthouse Bitcoin, and then there are all sorts of 
<clears throat> altcoins, alternative cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. In blockchain, there's so there's more than just a blockchain. There actually are a number of other sort of chains out there, open and yes. closed. There's there's a uh, side chains. There's open chains, and what a side chain is is if you have a blockchain, then a side chain takes transactions and attaches those onto the blockchain at different increments. So if a blockchain, the timing of the blocks is every 10 minutes, then a side chain may be every five minutes or every 30 minutes. And it doesn't have to go mm -hmm. with the same timing as the main blockchain. Um, and then, like I said, the open chains don't have any blocks. Um, mm. And this, it kind of establishes a new, um, the system is perpetually, um, chaining itself rather uh -huh. than in arbitrary times. Right. So people are, are, are trying to get their heads around this. A lot of people scratching, including myself, it's really getting a good grip on it. Uh, how would you describe the biggest misconceptions or misperceptions of, of blockchain? So, um, one of the biggest misconceptions I've heard about Bitcoin, uh, is that it's anonymous. It's not anonymous. It's pseudonymous, which means that most of the transactions are, or all of the transactions are put onto a central ledger in which the identities are attached to an account. And you can figure out who that person is through triangulation of data, whereas anonymous would prevent anyone from being able to figure out any sort of information about uh, a user. Uh, so when you're transacting on the Bitcoin blockchain, people can backtrace your IP. Um, they can figure out where your, where your transactions are coming from. Um, and if they know any more about you than your Bitcoin address, they could potentially, you know, if, if your Bitcoin address is associated with your Facebook profile or your Twitter account, then they could connect the two. Um, so this is where pseudonymous is not the same as anonymous and all cryptocurrencies are not anonymous unless well, it is specifically stated to be anonymous. It's most likely not anonymous. Well, so how did the, the folks at Silk Road stay, uh, the people who are running the Silk Road darknet uh, markets, I'm saying that not for you, Chris, <laughs> but how, how, how did they manage to say outside of the radar and not get captured. But they didn't. That's the well, issue. So uh, this is exactly why pseudonymity is different than anonymity. So you're right now, I believe they're on the third uh, iteration of the Silk Road. And this is because the first two were able to get busted. Uh, uh -huh. uh, what's his name? Ross Ulrich. Yeah, Ross Ulrich. Yeah. Um, you know, he was operating the Silk Road. And if it was anonymous, they wouldn't have been able to figure out who he was. Mm -hmm. And this is why um, there's records of all the transactions. They've been able to figure out uh, who was trading what in a lot of cases. And a lot of the people who traded on the Silk Road got busted. All right. So I want to just do a little deviation down into cybersecurity because uh, recently we've had all this uh, discussion about the Apple uh, getting a back door open to mm -hmm. see the terrorist information. To what extent uh, are things 
secure. Uh, in other words, you know, if you're a, if if you and I wanted to send send each other messages that we really felt we did not want anyone else to be able to read, would you feel comfortable sending to me something on Gmail or Skype or Facebook Messenger or Snapchat, or would you say you've got to you know you've got to use alternative means because none of that's reliable? So the, there's a huge difference between all of those platforms. So Gmail uh, and Facebook, I would not feel secure. Um, Even though they provide end-to-end encryption, Gmail to Gmail, Facebook to Facebook. Yes, mainly because you have the middle ground being Google, who hmm. they take your information and sell it. So right there, you know your information is uh, the Somehow advertisements visible. that pop up in your in your Gmail account are geared towards you because they're reading your email. Well, you give them permission to read your email. Sure. Um, so on those, absolutely not. And um, there's programs like Telegram, which destroy the packets as they're sent. Um, that is something that's more secure than Gmail. Uh, but in that regard, when you when you are using an internet service provider, anything that gets transmitted through them can be mirrored. So this is one of the big issues with the NSA in America is that they're just mirroring all SPs. So anything that we do on the internet is going through AT&T or Comcast, and then they're just copying all the information. And then um, that said, if you encrypt your information beyond just um, – secure socket layer, which is SSL, um, then you are going a step further. Like any, any steps beyond what is normally provided is going to help you keep your information secure. And in that regard, the human element is the weakest link in all security. That's, that's always the weakest link. Uh, for example, the most common password was one, two, three, four, five, six. I think, it's an insane amount of people use that as their password. Right. Um, so knowing that, you you know, if you write down your password and throw it in the garbage, somebody can find it. Um, mm-hmm. Social engineering is one of the biggest methods of hacking because brute force hacking is not really efficient. So what, what you get with these emails, these phishing emails, is really social engineering mm-hmm. because it's the most effective form of hacking. People... Yeah are their own worst enemies when it comes to security. So this is why you can call up someone and if you catch them at the wrong moment, convince them that you're related to them and you know, you need money and some people will send you money, especially from Nigeria. Right. Um, yeah. right? <laughs> but so do you believe in last pass or one pass these, uh, so, you know, quote unquote, you know, uh, random password generators that have under lock and key quote unquote, uh, passwords. Well, they are better than user generated, but any any sort of multi-factor authentication is going to be the best method. Um, if, for example, you have a text message sent to your phone that has a security code that you have to enter, um, a lot of the uh, Google Authy and uh, Google Authenticator um, applications are really good because it establishes two factors and. Like I said, any sort of two-factor authentication is better than any single password, uh, biometrics included. Um, so I wanted to get back into uh, Bitland and uh, talk about the financing because you're an NGO, 
But, you know, it's always a little bit confusing for people in business. NGO, are they trying to make money? <laughs> how, right. you, how do you go about getting financing for your project, Chris? So there is, we operate as an NGO and there's also the LLC element, which is the part that is developing the actual software. So in the process of trying to establish a fair and uncorrupted system, we have to approach the initial infrastructure from the nonprofit point of view to make sure that all of the elements are in place to prevent any sort of abuse of this system. And that's why there is the nonprofit aspect to it. But in the process, we are going to create software that can be licensed to different governments around Africa or um, other developing areas such as India or Brazil. Um, Cause there's a lot of underdeveloped areas in uh, Brazil sure. and, and India and other countries that have the capacity for their government to, uh, pay for these types of programs because this is the issue is we don't want the people paying for this when the government or um, investment banks can can fund the process to uh, make it so the poor are the ones benefiting from it and they are not abused by it. Um, and the idea is that establishing these these first this first infrastructure, will open up the area to investment that will benefit everyone. And then, um, sorry, um, the, like I said, the idea is that we have to do the first stage with nonprofit to ensure that the second phase where foreign investors start coming in in, in droves is not just another abusive uh situation like has evolved in other non-transparent situations yeah you were saying before we got into the recording that you want to keep control of it and you don't want to do an ipo you want to do an ico can you explain yes. us what that is so an ico is establishing your own token uh and selling the token as part of a system and an ecosystem that is not a share in a company so we're, we're building an ecosystem that is going to be able to establish smart contracts and smart land titles. So having a token that is access to this system is imperative to make sure that we can make the first wave of participants uh, compliant with the government and compliant with all of the procedures and processes necessary. Uh, so, Establishing this first control phase will make it so that we can figure out any problems in the system inherently. So then when we open the market up to other currencies, whether it's Bitcoin, U.S. dollars or yen, then all of the controls are in place to make sure that those currencies aren't able to be used for nefarious actors. When you're setting this project up, Chris, I have to imagine there are some people who are pretty pissed. I mean, and the people I'm thinking about are notary publics or people who are notarizing contracts, lawyers, uh, maybe even banks. Uh, so uh, which ones do you need to bring in as allies and who are the people going after you saying, you're not, a, we don't like you? I think part of it is when, when you're talking about disruptive technology, people who have jobs that are not part of those industries feel threatened. So 
the idea that we need to come into this with is that we're not threatening their jobs so much as we are trying to establish a new paradigm and their place in it is going to be different than it was before. So someone who's a notary may be, become a bit land operative where they're going around to the different communities helping the locals get in, involved in the system. And instead of them being the, the final say on the, um, the transaction, then the system is the one that establishes the checks and balances but they are still bringing people into the system and helping them through the process as a notary would. Uh, I don't even know if they necessarily give them help, but they're the final say on the transaction where in this process, the system would be mediating the final say and it takes the control out of an individual's hands Mm -hmm. because that's been one of the problems is that, you know, then you have these notaries who can say, Oh, um, I want my, brother to have this plot of land so i'm not going to finalize your document or i want my friend to have this so having that individual have too much control within the process has been part of the problem up until now so that's where you know giving them a role but then acknowledging that they have been part of the problem is how you keep them involved but acknowledge that they need to kind of step back right and evolve yeah, and, Absolutely. The, and the problem exists in, in developed countries as well. One of the things that is extraordinary, you know, and you're so familiar with this, is that blockchain can be used in many different ways where there are smart contracts. And I was reading on your site about this wedding that was done on on blockchain. I don't know if you saw or you even authored that article. No, I didn't author it, but I saw the uh, I saw that. <laughs> so you do, so you can even do a wedding on blockchain and so you avoid having a specific nation or church that is overseeing your contract Mm -hmm. i think this is a you know one of the reasons that we needed public officials was to have an uh, a third party confirmation of a contract so now that we can have these digital contracts and smart documents that are publicly available and immutable, then a lot of these positions are uh, obsolete. And I think that's where, you know, we don't have telegraph operators. We don't have telephone switchboard operators in the same way because things change. And I think when the technology changes, there's a period where adoption hasn't uh, become a hundred percent. So you have these transitional job periods um, and, we're going to see that in a lot of uh, computer-related industries and even notary-related industries. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of things that will have to be reassessed. And I think when someone is has been working in the same job for 20 years, they don't want to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a matter of trying to get people in, in the mindset that, just because you've done something for 20 years doesn't mean you're going to do it for 20 more years. And that might actually be holding everyone else back if you want to keep doing it for 20 years. And I, um, Like I said, I think there is an element of having to acknowledge that people staying in the same position for so long holds other people back. Well, I like to say, Chris, is changes for sure. Growth is the option. 
That's from my old friend Sam Villa. Um, so, hey, Chris, when you, you're uh, really plunged into all this, how do you stay up to date with what's going on in blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency world? I try to read Coindesk at least uh, every couple of days. Uh, and that's a website that is specifically focused on cryptocurrency-related projects. Um, I'll try to look at the uh, technology uh, sites on CNN or Fox just to see if it's breaking into that. I mm. check on it, like I said, just to see what kind of mainstream coverage that cryptocurrency is getting. And what ends up happening is it in the last year, you see a lot more investment banks getting mainstream coverage about uh, researching in the blockchain technology. So in the International Business Times, you'll see uh, crypto articles every, every week now almost. Um, and do you see them getting it right? Um, or are they still making some major mistakes? I see them acknowledging that they're not experts and that they're doing their due diligence and their research. So these banks are getting into Bitcoin development and they're not plunging headfirst into it which is smart, but I think the reason that they're doing it is because it just didn't go away. I think they, you know, for six years, they just hoped it would die off and go away. And now that it's not, they finally have to acknowledge that they need to get into it. So you see uh, the Chinese government and the Indian government looking into developing their own digital currencies, which hasn't been officially announced, but they have officially started talking about these things. Um, and like I said, I think those people were hoping it would just go away. And now I think they're looking for ways to capitalize off of it. All right. So we've established that there are many different types of chains. Uh, are, how bullish are you on Bitcoin itself surviving? Um, I, I generally, there. To me, because Bitcoin has no central authority over it and it has no real party that it is beholden to, it's almost impossible to predict things with it. And that's where I don't think that there is any sort of precedent to trading Bitcoin. And I think that's where um, it's hard... It's hard to know where Bitcoin's going to be in five days, let alone five months. And mm -hmm. I think people delude themselves into trying to analyze trends and look at candlesticks and say, you know, Bitcoin's going to go up and this and it's going to make this. Nobody has any clue what drives Bitcoin. And that's the beauty of it. This is the free market incarnate. Mm -hmm. I believe the Bitcoin is the closest to actually having a free market currency that will ever get mainly because it kind of came out of the ether that, you know, obviously somebody created it, but the, the way it came, came about is um, there was no specific government or entity that disseminated it through the world. And I, I'm not sure if that could ever happen again in that capacity. So that's where knowing what I've seen about Bitcoin, it's so completely unpredictable and like I said, anybody who I believe anybody who 
thinks they can read Bitcoin charts are deluding themselves. So personally. Nakamoto, what was he? Is he been put in prison or Nakamoto, whatever his name is, Sash, whatever Satoshi, Satoshi, he's still out it, there. As far as I know, he's still uh, completely unknown. All right. Um, so, hey, Chris, how does anyone uh, follow you or get in touch with you? Find out what's going on more with Bitland. What are the best ways to connect with you? Um, so we have Bitland uh, Project. I think it's at Bitland Project. Mm-hmm. Make sure. I'll put that in the show notes anyway. Um, ChrisBates01 at gmail.com. And we have the bitland.world website. Um, right. We can be contacted through there. All right. Well, I'll put all of that into the show notes with accurate URLs. Good luck on your journey and uh, plotting it out there. It's a really, it was great to have you see you at NetExplo. I really, I think you're, you're, what I like about what you're doing is you're exploring technology and, and very different facets of technology. It's really clear it's not just about blockchain. You're using drones. You've got, of course, cybersecurity concerns. And then you have to work with all these different actors. So it's mm-hmm. a hugely interesting project to follow. So, Chris, I wish you a lot of success. Look forward to staying in touch and following what you're doing. Thank you, sir. I appreciate the time. And we look forward to making this happen. That's cool. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mentioned in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover's portrait With all your favorite shades
do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.